Uh, well, this morning we have the privilege of hearing of one of, from one of our gifted brothers that's uh, a license to preach, as it were, our brother Chris Cox, a recent graduate of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, truly a servant of our church, uh, an encourager to all who know him. Um, I'm out of town this week. Uh, brother, we're so thankful for your labors. We're so thankful uh, for you being willing to step up and bring the Word of God to us this morning. And uh, we eagerly look forward to hearing you preach to us. So come on. Well, good morning. It is an honor to preach before you this morning. Turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Let me make sure. I turned it on. Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 35 through to the end of the chapter, verse 41. And uh, just to give you a little bit of context, as we land here in the Gospel of Mark, we're um, changing our our series a little bit uh, from 1 Corinthians, taking a little pause for this week. And as we land here in Mark, Jesus has just finished teaching on the parables of the kingdom of God. He says in his thesis statement in chapter 1, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so in these parables, he expands on what he means by the kingdom of God. And then we find our passage today, he begins the set of miracles, where he shows that he is God who can inaugurate the kingdom of God. He can bring about the kingdom of God. And so we see here in Jesus' calming of the storm that this is the first miracle that he preaches and that he performs for his disciples and to those who hear his word today. So read with me as we look at verse 35 through 41, God's word. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. And he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let us pray. Father, we ask that this morning that your word would illuminate our hearts, that it would illuminate our minds. Lord, we pray that it would, it would shape our hearts and shape our minds and, and shape our hands to um, conform even greater to the image of your son, Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would not leave unchanged as we see the great miracle um, of your son calming the sea, that we would learn from this passage how you sustain us in your great mercy and your great grace as we encounter various sufferings and trials and storms of our own. And so, Lord, we humbly ask that you would teach us that this morning through the preaching of your word. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said before, Jesus has just finished a set of preaching on the parables of the kingdom of God. And the parable that is most important to our miracle here this morning is the passage on the parable of the soils. So just a little bit before in this passage. So what we see in the parable of the soils is there's multiple seeds. And these seeds represent different various responses to the word of God, to the gospel being preached. And so the one particular seed that is instructive to our story and to our miracle today is the seed on the rocky ground. So look with me at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 4. Jesus teaches here, And these seeds are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And yet, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Oh, excuse me. And when they have no root in themselves but endure for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the words, immediately they fall away. So this is the seed that Jesus is teaching his disciples and those who hear the, the, the words today about the seed that falls on rocky ground, the seed that springs up very quickly with the sun and yet doesn't take root and is scorched and then burns and falls away. And so we see that this is the same uh, instructive passage here that Jesus teaches on when he says to his disciples, you will encounter storms, you will encounter these same persecutions and trials that this rock seed on rocky soil uh, partakes of, and yet you will have a different response to this seed. And so in the same way, we are tested by the storms in our lives. So some of you in this uh, church this morning, you may be in the midst of that storm. Some of you might be just after that storm. You might have just gone through that storm. And then some of you might be preparing to enter that storm as well. And so this story instructs all of our hearts and our minds on how we ought to view God's purposes in our sufferings. So with that said, let's begin our study. My first point this morning is the testing of our faith. So this first section is quite clearly the testing of the disciples' faith. Quite obviously, it's the storm. It's the whirlwind. These disciples, they were experienced fishermen. They had probably taken countless trips across the Sea of Galilee. They had probably encountered many storms as well. The Sea of Galilee was famous for having these massive storms that would would overtake it in in a sudden instance. There would be cold air that would come down from the mountain and meet the hot air, and you just get this violent tempest. And so they had probably experienced a few of these before. Uh, They didn't have, it goes without saying, they didn't have the weather app, right? I'm a tennis coach. I live on the weather app. And yet they didn't have that, and so they didn't know that the storm was going to come upon them. It came upon them suddenly. And so we see that the boat begins to fill with water. The disciples begin to truly panic. This storm was something unique. It was something that even these experienced fishermen had not experienced before. And not only was it a uniquely strong storm, but the important detail that we can't miss, but may be easy to miss, is that Jesus intentionally told his disciples to leave the safety of the shore to go across to the other side. He had them leave at evening, which 
was the most likely time for a storm. It was also pitch black by the time they were out in the middle of it. And so that probably aided in their, in their growing and their fear. My point is that this storm was no accident. It was intentional. This storm was not outside of the providence of God. And therefore it had a purpose. So often you may have even heard this passage being preached and it's preached in a way that Jesus saves his people from the storms in life. And while that is one point in this story, what's often neglected is the fact that Jesus leads the disciples, he commands the disciples to go into the storm. So it's a little interesting to think that, yes, he saves the disciples from the storm, but he leads them in there in the first place. He knew that this storm would be bigger than they had ever experienced, and that the boat would even start to sink. And he knew that he would be fast asleep, so that their fear and their panic, it would continue to grow and grow until it lashed out, and that rebuking question that they directed towards him. Jesus sovereignly decreed this storm that would come upon him and the disciples. And as we, we think about this, what, what's the issue? If the issue is that well, many well-meaning Christians and even philosophers attempt to empty God of his power over this world in order to absolve him of evil and wrongdoing. But what they do is they end up conflicting God, how God's word speaks about himself. The Bible and God himself does not allow someone to have the view that the circumstances in this world, like this storm, happen outside of God's sovereign decree. The scriptures are full of examples of God decreeing natural disasters for his purpose. I'll just name three. The flood in Genesis 6 that covers the whole world. Talk about a lot of water. Uh, Think of the parting of the Red Sea in Exodus 14 to save God's people from the Egyptians. And one more water example you may ask for. Think of Jonah, who encounters a storm of similar uh, violent tempest that we see here in this parable. Um, And yet, he is brought through that storm. So the scriptures are clear that Jesus decrees all that comes to pass in history, including this storm. Colossians 1, 16-17 says, For by him, Jesus... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So what do we learn from this? That we must not rob Jesus of his power, because then we rob the storm of its purpose. When we rob God of his sovereign power, then the trials and the sufferings that we go through, they're just that. It's just hardship. There's nothing more to it. But if we believe that God purposely brings us through these trials and these storms, then these trials and storms and hardships have a purpose. But let's think about this. Why does God test our faith through suffering? Well, listen to 1 Peter 1, 5-7. We've been studying 1 Peter as a church, and so you may be familiar with this passage. It says, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise 
and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, God's purposes in our suffering are to create a faith that's worth more than all the purified gold in this world. Right? Gold could be the most valuable thing, and yet we don't, we don't take that anywhere. It gathers dust and then it perishes on earth. And yet our faith is one thing that we have for eternity. We have here on earth and we have it in eternity. And so these trials and these storms and these sufferings that Jesus brings through refine that faith, strengthen our faith, and build our faith. That is the purpose of the testing. The church father, uh, John Chrysostom, writes on this passage. He says that God, or Jesus, suffers them to be tossed by the waves, the disciples. This is where miracles are to be shown. He suffers the people to be present where temptations and fears are stilled. There he takes with him only the victors of the world whom he would prepare for strife. So this, in this, God prepares us to be victors with Christ by showing us his miracles and his power through suffering. And think of this, the same suffering our Lord and Savior underwent on the cross, and then he rose victorious over death. And this is the same suffering we undertake as well. So we imitate our Savior, and we conform to the image of our Savior. This is why he tested the disciples in the storm, and this is why he tests us today through trials and persecutions. But let's look at our second point today, the object of our faith. So we've looked at the testing of our faith and the purpose of that. But now let's look at the object of our faith, because that is the most natural question, right? If we are to have faith, what is it in? What is the object? So read with me verses 38 and 39. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. As I said earlier, it's remarkable that Jesus is sleeping when this whole fiasco goes down. I mean, it's almost more impressive than the storm itself, the fact that Jesus can sleep. I was looking at pictures of what these fishing boats would have looked like. And, and these aren't, you know, the fishing boats that you might see on, um, what's it, uh, Deadliest Catch or something like that, where they got a cabin and maybe they're protected from the wind and the waves and the storm and the wind. These were open, small, maybe 18 foot at most fishing boats. And so the fact that Jesus could be sleeping, he's still being tossed around. He's still probably soaking wet and, and facing that wind. And the fact that he's sleeping is incredible. It's, an, it's almost more of a miracle than the storm, in calming the storm. And I think it's important that we don't miss that detail, right? So often we can move straight to, well, Jesus shows his identity as the Son of God by calming the storm. But we have to focus in on this little verse that says that he was sleeping on the cushion. It's very important. Jesus has just finished a full day of open air, or perhaps I should say open boat preaching. Right? He's been preaching from the boat, and we see this in the verse where it says that they left just as he was. So that means he was preaching from the boat to the whole crowd on the shore. And as some of you may know, right, preaching is exhausting physically 
spiritually, emotionally, a whole week of preparation. Maybe this gives you a little bit more appreciation for what Pastor Nathan does week in and week out, right? That even Jesus got tired of preaching. He had to preach to all the crowds with no microphone, so he had to extend his voice. Um, It took a lot of strength and a lot of energy. And so all that to say, Jesus, he was rightfully tired. So tired that he truly fell asleep on the fishing boat due to fatigue. So I ask the question, is the object of our faith a man who gets tired and, and has to fall asleep in the middle of a storm? Yes, that is the object of our faith. Mark seems to be making this clear in the narrative. Jesus is revealing his manhood by the fact that he is physically exhausted and needed rest so bad that he could sleep in the raging storm. While Jesus is fully God and reveals his power by calming the seas, he became man, truly man, and took on the weaknesses and limits that men have, such as limited energy. Think of Philippians 1.7 that says, Jesus took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Or think of the Nicene Creed, which says, Our Lord Jesus became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. The seemingly small detail of Jesus sleeping reveals the truth and the importance of the incarnate Lord Jesus as the object of our faith. And perhaps this story, like none other, reveals that, right? Where we see one verse where Jesus is sleeping and shows himself to be just a weak man, and then the next verse, he becomes Yahweh God, calming the raging storm. And so I think it's important to mention a few of the false beliefs about the incarnation, right? Why is it important that the object of our faith is the incarnate Lord Christ, who is both truly man and truly God? Um, Two that have been prevalent through church history are Arianism Arianism and Docetism. Arianism believed that Jesus was not fully God, but a created being. And Docetism taught that Jesus only appeared human, but was completely divine. So it's just a mirage. Jesus himself rejects both of these heretical views. The church obviously rejects these views as heretical, but Jesus himself does in this passage. The object of our faith must be the incarnate Christ who became fully man so that he might represent us and die for us on the cross. And yet he must be fully God in order to live a life of perfect obedience, fulfilling the law and showing his power over death and the resurrection. Think of Romans, Romans 5.17 here, which argues, uh, Paul argues here, for because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. So this is where, if you've heard before, the, the language of Jesus being the second Adam, it's meant to, to make the understanding that Jesus is fully man, that he had to become man in order to be our covenant head like Adam was. Right? Adam uh, took us into sin, and yet Christ, by being fully man, takes us on the cross to righteousness and to um, satisfaction of God's justice. Right? 
So brothers and sisters, if this testing of the storm was for a purpose, then it was to focus the disciples and us today, the hearers of this story, that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is vital to to believe because Jesus, the true Jesus, is the object of our faith. So we've seen the testing of our faith. We've seen the object of our faith. And now we move to our third and final point, the response of faith. So let's read verses 40 and 41 again. 40 and 41 again, yeah. And Jesus said to them, the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Well, first let's examine Jesus' words when he says, Why are you so afraid? I think it's important before we get to the faith aspect to, to understand fear's relationship to faith. Is fear always bad? Is fear a sin? Well, I want to argue that some fears are good and healthy. Right? We have the, the natural, the fear of a hot stove, right? fear of wild animals, um, maybe even perhaps fear of a storm. Right? I'm from Florida. When it's about to have a hurricane, I'm not going to just row my boat, not row a boat, or motor you know, my boat out into the hurricane. Right? I have a natural fear, and that's good. These fears keep us alive. They help us avoid danger. Um, perhaps some of you have heard of the, the mountain climber named Alex Honnold. Um, how can he do that with such confidence? Right? He, what he does is he'll free solo mountains without a rope. Sometimes with you know, barely touching any part of the rock face. And he just he has no fear over it. There's no adrenaline pumping through his veins at that point. Right? What's wrong with him? In some respect. Well, Brain scientists have discovered that the amygdala, which is the fear center of his brain, just doesn't function. Now, you might say, well, that would be pretty sweet. I, I, that would be pretty awesome to not fear anything. But there are some very debilitating side effects besides death, of course. But even social side effects, where they just have no fear of social context as well. Think about it. If you didn't fear anything, your life might look a little different and how you act. And so, I want to argue that God purposely created us to fear. He purposely created the amygdala, the fear center of the brain. In the same way, he created us to desire, and yet we can pervert and we can sin through our unhealthy desires. Fear can be a good and healthy emotion, but become sinful when it leads to anxiety and to panic. The disciples on the boat... They weren't wrong to fear the storm, but they were wrong to respond in the way they did to their Savior. So their fear over the storm revealed their lack of faith in the Son of God who was with them in the boat. They feared the storm more than they feared the one who could decree the storm, that did decree the storm. So instead of asking Jesus respectfully to save them from the storm, they questioned his character. And this is, this is vitally important. 
They cry out, do you not care that we are perishing? They don't question Jesus' power. They don't simply ask for help, right? We think of a prayer for help being different than a prayer that questions God's compassion, that questions God's goodness, that questions God's love for us. This is why Jesus rebukes them for being afraid. Because their fear revealed their lack of faith in who Jesus was. Uh, John Calvin absolutely puts it this way. Fear, which awakens faith, is not in itself faulty till it goes beyond its bounds. Its excess lies in disturbing or weakening the composure of faith, which ought to rest solely on the word of God. But as it never happens that believers exercise such restraint on themselves to keep their faith from being injured, their fear is almost always attended by sin. Yet we ought to be aware that this is not every kind of fear, which indicates a want of faith, right? There's good, there's healthy fears. But only that dread or that anxiety which disturbs the peace of the conscience in a manner that it does not rest on the promises of God. Are we not guilty of this as well? Is when our peace is disturbed and when we question, does God care? Does God even see our suffering? When our prayer turns from simply a prayer of, Lord, give me strength, to, Lord, are you there? Do you care? Are you good? As the theologian Joel Beakey argues in his book on holiness, in the biblical context, not fearing is walking by faith rather than by sight. So, while we are in the storms and the trials of this life, it may seem by sight, right, in the storm, that God does not care. But a faithful response for the Christian is to continue to walk in faith and look to our incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Sufferings in our life, they don't undermine the character of God, like some people might argue. But they test and they stretch our response of faith in God's character and God's promises. So we do see that the disciples respond well to Jesus' power to calm the seas and the wind. They proclaim in verse 41, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, the disciples are Jewish, and therefore even a cursory understanding of the Old Testament reveals that Yahweh is the only one that can control the weather. We think of throughout many of the Old Testament narratives that he did empower men to do miracles, um, but something about the weather only God could do, right? People or men could pray for Jesus to, or for God to adjust the weather, to change the weather, um, but only God could. And so the sign of Yahweh, the sign of the creator king, is that he had power over nature. He had power over the weather. And so this miracle, it's a miracle of all all miracles to the Jews. It's power above any other power. It's the power of Yahweh. So most vividly, the Jews, they would have remembered the parting of the Red Sea in order to save their people from bondage and the army of the Egyptians. Throughout the Psalms, we read in Psalm 65, which was our call to worship, that the awesome deeds of God are described by his ability to still the roaring of the seas 
and the roaring of the waves. Roaring. It's a tough word to say. Or Jeremiah 5.22, which says, Do you not fear me? Declares the Lord. Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as a boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. And again, you know, being from Florida, I've been to the beach many times, and whenever you try to contain the sea, you think of building that little sandcastle fort. Children, if you've done that before, you might remember that, right? And whenever you try to contain the sea, you just can't do it. At a certain point, high tide comes and just wrecks it, all the work that you've done. Who can contain the sea? Who can bring boundaries to the sea? Only the powerful Yahweh, God. And so controlling the vast ocean is not only a sign of Yahweh's power, but His holiness. His all-encompassing, His otherness, His separateness from His creation. We think of the creator-creature distinction, that we, we don't even come close to being what God is. And so the fear of God, as the disciples proclaim here, they have a great fear. The fear of that of God leads to knowledge of Him. Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so as we think about a response of faith, it has to involve fear. There has to be a response of fear before there is a response of faith. As I've argued earlier, God created us to fear, but to fear Him above all else. And we see that with the disciples in this passage. That that's how they respond. They didn't initially respond with faith, but they responded with faith after they witnessed the raging of the storm being calmed. To respond in fearful faith, then, is to grasp hold of true peace. Jesus says in John 16.33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, this same Jesus who proclaims and rebukes the sea, peace be still, does that to us as well. He does that, he says that to our hearts. Peace be still before the ever-present and powerful trials and sufferings that we undertake as well. The trials and sufferings that attempt to drown us as well, Jesus says to those, peace, be still. Like our communion hymn says today, the peace comes from faith in God's love that is vast as an ocean and loving kindness as the flood. So instead of that that whirlwind of judgment as turned around for the Christian to be a whirlwind of love, right? Loving kindness as vast as the flood which covers the whole earth. So we understand that we must respond in faith to the God-man Jesus Christ. We must remind ourselves of who God is. We must remind ourselves of our fear of Him. And we must cling to God's promises of love and deliverance for His people. Well, as I bring this to a conclusion, I want to remind you and, and show you one little phrase that can go unnoticed. Look here in, verses, or in verse 36. Right at the end of the verse, it says, And other boats were with him. 
So it wasn't just one boat that the disciples and Jesus were on. There were other boats. We don't know much about these boats. We don't know what ended up happening to them. I assume that they were ended up being fine. Um, but what does this mean? Why, is this just put in here by accident? Is this just a, you know, to show that this was a um, first-hand account, that this was someone who witnessed the events and is adding in that little detail? I don't think so. In ancient Christian literature, the church was often portrayed as a boat upon waters. And the storms that are thrashing around are the persecutions and the sufferings and the trials that Jesus has promised the church will experience. So the beauty of this little phrase, there's many, but one of those is that we have others to lean on in these trials and these sufferings. The church is that earthly gift from God to sustain us while we await our heavenly inheritance and home. It's our safe haven during the storms in life that God is using to strengthen our faith. And this is striking, but do you remember your entrance into the church? We're about to have some membership vows here, and and when they've entered the church, it's important that they've had a confession of faith and that they've been baptized. And so baptism is Jesus' promise to you that like Noah through the flood and like the Israelites through the Red Sea and like we see in our passage today, like the disciples through the storm, that you have been brought forth through the waters of judgment and to raise to new life by the power of Jesus Christ. And so we have a lot more alike with these disciples than you might think. As Isaiah 43 says, Fear not, We are redeemed by God and that we can pass through the waters unconsumed. We can pass through the fire unconsumed because the Lord is with us and he is our Savior. So we are a baptized congregation. We've been through the storm as well. We are one of those boats with Christ that is being rescued from the whirlwind, the whirlwind of judgment through our common confession of faith in in the incarnate Jesus Christ. And so we make this confession clear even when we partake of the Lord's Supper which shows the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus the man who suffered for us, right? This this story shows that the sufferings that Jesus would undergo before we undergo our own sufferings and trials before glory. And so, brothers and sisters, the sufferings and the trials and the storms in this life, they're never easy, right? This isn't a grin and bear it. Right? They're still difficult. Sometimes they take a long time. But God has a glorious purpose and a future for those who trust in him as their boat is rocked to and fro by suffering. Let us pray. Father God, you indeed are our Yahweh God who has control and commands the sea just by the spoken, um, just by your spoken word. Lord, in the same way you tell the storm to peace, that you call it to peace, you call it to be still. Lord, you tell that to our hearts as well. When we doubt your promises, when we doubt your truths, when we doubt the word of God that you have given to us in the scripture. Lord, we pray and we ask humbly and yet boldly that you would give our hearts peace and give our hearts stillness as we go through various sufferings and trials. Lord, that you would prepare us as a church and as a body 
to be like the boats in this story, to come together um, and not doubt the goodness and the loving kindness of our God, but to ask for help and to appeal to your strength that you give to your people, Lord. Lord, we thank you once again for your mercy and your grace and salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.